News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has arrived in the UK meeting with allies about what is going on in Ukraine, the intensifying situation there. Let's get an update on this now. Joining us is Crystal Gumad Singh, our Global News European Bureau Chief, to find out more about what is going on. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. So what is the purpose of this visit? Well, right now, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has an incredibly busy schedule. He has had at least one session with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He's had a long uh, in-person meeting with uh, the Queen at Windsor Castle. Um, and he is going to be having more meetings with Johnson as well as officials from the Netherlands. Uh, we're, we're not being given a whole lot of detail as to exactly what is going to come of all of these meetings. We do know that Johnson has been, um, you know, heavily focused on coming up with sort of a humanitarian plan to help Ukrainians. Um, and, you know, obviously there is there is hope that this can be um, a, a multi-country um, a plan. So we're waiting to see exactly what will come of that. But um, a lot of talks ongoing with with different ministers in different countries. Uh, and, and there is a, a lot of discussions, including discussions of the third peace talks between Ukrainian officials and, and Russian officials. Okay, so peace talks though didn't didn't that didn't go very well the first time they tried this. The first or second time they've tried it, because this is the third round that they're going with. Of course, there there is an ongoing effort. Uh, you know, Ukraine has said that they are uh, desperate to end this war uh, with Russia, clearly saying Russia is the aggressor in this case. But we also saw this morning in The Hague at the International Court of Justice, where Ukraine had filed a motion asking for the, the court to force Russia to halt the war in Ukraine. But Russian law Lawyers didn't show up to those two days of hearings. You know, Ukraine presented their evidence this morning. So it is unclear if there will be anything that comes of, of these discussions between the two countries. Okay. And he's also, I guess, I understand the prime minister is going to be meeting with the leaders of other countries as well, especially the Baltic countries. Yeah, he uh, a part of his schedule. There's a, a you know a really busy trip for the prime minister and, and, and reporters traveling with him. He'll go, be going to Latvia. We've seen other leaders in Latvia, including Secretary of State for the United States. There, um, ongoing discussions with NATO and NATO countries as to you know what can be done. Is enough being done to secure NATO countries that you know are neighboring with Ukraine to make sure that they are in a good position? Should any of the uh, aggression in Ukraine with Russia sort of spill over into other countries. So there is a lot of uh, crisscrossing going on to start this week of discussions in different countries with different officials, all centered on Ukraine. And what do we know at this point, Crystal, about the humanitarian issue, about the refugees? Are they also being taken in in the UK? The the issue with uh, the the refugees and, and people trying to flee the war is really really important. And we had heard talk about uh, ceasefire and humanitarian corridors being set up. The ceasefire was was tenuous at best. Ukrainians saying it was already broken before the the new round of ceasefire and humanitarian corridors were brought up. However, Russia is now saying, and Ukraine is is, is reacting and said that this is immoral because Russia said these people will be allowed safe passage 
to Russia or to Belarus, which is a Russian ally. So a lot of concern about whether or not people will actually be allowed to flee and if they'll stop shelling and the rocket attacks, giving people the chance to actually cross the border. Of course, these people are looking to get into Europe, looking to get into Poland and Romania and Hungary, not looking to go to Russia. Oh, boy. All right. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for the update. You're welcome. That's Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief, talking about the situation as Prime Minister Trudeau has arrived in the United Kingdom. In fact, I, the, the royal family, the official social media account for the royal family, actually also put out a picture of him meeting the Queen today in person. That would be the first dignitary the Queen has welcomed uh, since she was diagnosed with, and it was made public that she had COVID-19. Uh, so yes, there was an audience at Windsor Castle for that but also a lot of political meetings going on here, meeting with the UK Prime Minister, meeting with the uh, Prime Minister of the Netherlands, meeting with the leaders of, of, of Latvia and Poland and, and Germany, because the big discussion is how is NATO going to move forward and deal with the situation in Ukraine. So there's more to come on that. There will be updates. Keep it tuned in here for the very latest. And of course, we'll have more to talk about uh, coming up on the show this morning. Also, of course, gas prices, right? Hot topic today, another shock at the pump as you were going to work. I couldn't, again, once get, this has happened so much over the last couple of weeks, driving by gas station this morning and thought, what? It went up again? Yeah, it did. You're looking at about $2.10 a litre this morning in most places. What are you cutting out of your budget? What are you not doing now because of the price of gas? How are you kind of compensating for that in your life? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about gas prices this morning and the impact it's having because, once again, sticker shock when you drive by a gas station. Now, for me, driving in this morning was early. I saw about $2.10 a litre at every station that I saw as I was coming in to work. But you know what? Alex emailed me this morning and said lots of station in the Surrey area on Monday morning, $2 and what? Two fifteen, so two one four point nine is what Alex is seeing. Two dollars and fifteen cents a liter. He said at lots of gas stations in the Surrey area. You can tell me what you're seeing out there. Send me at cknw.com. Now these kinds of prices are the change your habit change your behavior type of prices, where people start to change things because of what it's costing them to fill up at the pump. And it might be, well, we're not going to have dinner out. We're not going to do takeout this week. Or, you know, it might be more serious than that. You might think, I'm going to have to cut back on my charitable giving. That is impacting a lot of charities. Lots of businesses are being impacted. We'll hear more about that. But let's talk more about charitable organizations that are being hit hard by these gas prices. Joining us now is Karen reed do, who's the executive director of the Surrey Crime Prevention Society. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Tell me, how are these high gas prices impacting the organization? Well, excuse me. Um, When COVID hit, our organization. We had to change protocols. Uh, in the past, our vehicles were paired, people were paired up in vehicles. And so when COVID hit, we had to restructure our approach to delivering our programs by um, having people ride in their own vehicle. So it was single person per vehicle, but paired up. So that hit us hard with uh, gas. So we have, we have volunteers who use their own vehicles and we reimburse them for their gas. So that was a that was a little hit to our budget, but now with the gas prices, we have a certain 
formula that we use to reimburse our volunteers with their gas. And now we have to reevaluate that formula. And of course, we're going to have to increase it because we don't want our volunteers to be out of pocket. So it has hit us hard. Uh, We use our vehicles for community safety programs throughout the city of Surrey. And um, every program that we use our vehicles has now been impacted by this. So we have to rethink the way that we deliver our programs. I mean, we have over 500 volunteers who deliver our programs throughout the city five days a week. And you can imagine that uh, that's going to have a significant increase in our budget, right? Right. Okay. So tell me a bit about the programs and things, Karen, that the Crime Prevention Society does. So we have our four nights a week, we go out covert in vehicles, our volunteers use their vehicles, and they go out and observe and report throughout the city four nights a week, uh, delivering, uh, reporting on things like, uh, sorry, suspected uh, impaired driving, um, uh, illegal dumping, Uh, they're all over the city reporting on things that are um, potential criminal activity or requiring bylaws to attend. We also have our traffic safety program throughout the city five days a week where we do uh, traffic, public awareness and education. Uh, Our volunteers use their vehicles for that program as well. Then we also have our community safety tours and rural areas within the city of Surrey. So we have um, our volunteers that are using their vehicles to observe and report on a variety of things in the community. So they're making a significant difference. Since 2012, they've contributed over 225,000 hours to the city of Surrey. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty remarkable number when you think about it. And they're youth volunteers, university and high school to students that participate in our programs. That is a remarkable contribution. So essentially, you're talking about making people feel safer in their neighborhoods or knowing that somebody is there if they have a question or, or they see something happening, right? Exactly. Our volunteers also actively participate with the police agencies of jurisdiction in our city as well as uh, transit police and they uh, raise public awareness and education on a variety of important issues like public uh, pedestrian safety also working with students in grade six and seven uh, talking about road safety with those students um, we have high school programs we work with uh, Transit Police uh, Blue Cadets program, Blue Eagles Cadets program. So we're doing a lot of work out there, and to have this gas price um, increase has hit us hard. I mean, we are we are reevaluating how we're delivering our programs. Maybe looking uh, at maybe pulling back on some of the programs. So I'm I'm actively looking for additional funding out there. Um, writing grants and also talking to our community partners to see if they can help anyway. But everybody's hit hard. We're not the only charity that's hit hard, right? But Roger, can you see then at what point you might have to cut back on programs? I think that uh, as we see the prices go up, we're going to have to uh, evaluate that by management team or um, reevaluating things as we speak to ensure that uh, our programs are not compromised. We have commitments that we've made to our community partners uh, that fund us, the provincial government, the city of Surrey, as well as other grants that we write. So we have a commitment that we have to fulfill. We um, will be in contact and communicate with our community partners to ensure they're fully aware of any impact this has on our programs. Is this something that you're hearing about with other charitable organizations as well, Karen? 
Yes, I mean, the food bank in Surrey, um, they use their vehicles to go around and pick up food. Um, I know that the cancer agency with their drivers are also impacted. It's um, There's a lot of different organizations out there that I- use vehicles. And you can't just pick up the slack, right? You're saying you're writing grants, you're trying to find, but if everybody is having this problem, how everybody is not going to find relief. Exactly. And when you think about, uh, you know, it was compound, this this is just compounding the whole uh, outcome of what happened with COVID over the past two years. Um, and it's just hitting us again uh, to the point where, every charity is going to be in the same boat looking for additional revenue to cover the cost. So, I mean, COVID hit us hard. We had to buy um, PPE. We had to buy all the safety uh, equipment that we needed to protect our, our volunteers and staff. So it, that hit us hard. And wasn't, that was not uh, something we projected because in 2019, before COVID hit, that wasn't part of our budget for 2020. So it keeps on compounding over the, as we evolve through COVID and, and now with the gas prices. So. Right. How how long, Karen, do you think before you have to make that decision to say we can't do X, Y, Z anymore? Well, depending on if I can get funding uh, from our community partners to offset this, um, I would probably say about two to three months because summer the summer months are going to be the busiest for us. That's when we are out there full, full, full speed with our volunteers. And of course, engaging youth has never been more important especially in Surrey, and with over 500 volunteers, I see a huge, and, and with limited programs out there being um, offered with, because of COVID, we are going to be impacted significantly. So we'll have to reevaluate that as we roll into the summer months. All right, we'll see what happens. Karen, thank you for sharing that story with us today. Thank you so much, Simi. You take care and stay safe. You too. That's Karen reed Sadu, who's the Executive Director of the Surrey Crime Prevention Society, where they are essentially having to reevaluate their programs because of the higher cost of gas prices, right? This is Mornings with Simi. We're continuing to see lots of rallies and protest things held in support of Ukraine. And a lot of them happening right here, as a matter of fact, just this past weekend, one held in Victoria. It was very clear to BC lawmakers that they could see all of the people out there in support. So we thought, let's check in and find out more about how Ukrainians here in BC are dealing with everything that is going on. Joining us now is Devin Soretta-Goldie, President of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress in Victoria. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you have family members back in Ukraine? Uh, my family members are now in Poland, uh, gratefully, but I do have a number of friends and colleagues who are still in Ukraine. What has it been like, even for your family, to to get to Poland? What has that been like? Uh, it's 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 been difficult. It's been a journey. Um, luckily, my family is from Western Ukraine, so it wasn't as hard. Um, but for the families of many of my friends. It's been incredibly difficult and a very, very dangerous journey, especially those coming from Kiev. And Devin, what do you think of the level of support that has been seen around the world? Um, it's been incredible and deeply moving. Um, we, we've been so, so touched and incredibly grateful for the outpouring of support we've seen, especially here locally. It, were you surprised by that? Yes. Um, Yes. 
<laughs> Why? Uh, I I think we we've been fighting this war for so long, and we've been working to to raise awareness for so long, um, and a lot of the media attention shifted away from Ukraine after Euromaidan, and it felt like the world had forgotten. Um, and so I, I was quite surprised to see um, the swell of support. Um, it, it was a little disappointing that, of course, you know, it took the outbreak of war for um, the public to, to pay attention, but the incredible outpouring of support when that happened was far more than I expected and overwhelming. I truly did not anticipate so, so much public support. What are you hearing, Devin, from people then when they do come out to the rallies, when they do want to show their support? Why are they doing it? Why is this important, do you think, to so many people? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think it's it's the values that we stand for as Canadians. Um, you know, freedom and independence as a nation and the right to, to choose how the country wants to conduct itself. You know, the right to democracy um, but a lot of people, a lot of people are really moved by the images that they're seeing and the humanitarian crisis and want to help. Um, and a huge amount of people are of Ukrainian ancestry. You know, Canadians have, well, Canada has an, a very, very, very large Ukrainian Canadian population. Um, and we're having tons of people who haven't necessarily been connected with the community before who are coming out and saying, you know, my grandma's Ukrainian or I have Ukrainian ancestry and this is important to me. This is reminding me of where I come from. It's so interesting then, Devin, isn't that? Because it's actually making, helping people to kind of rediscover their Ukrainian roots and it's almost creating more of a sense of a Ukrainian identity. Mm-hmm. I very much agree, yeah. As opposed to what is, you know, the attempt was to get rid of that. And I feel like it's almost doing the complete opposite. Do you think this level of support will continue? I hope so. I do. Um, It seems to be growing. Yesterday, the rally was absolutely incredible. Um, There were, the reports say thousands of people. um, And, you know, we're constantly getting contacted at the Ukrainian Cultural Center with people wanting to get involved by memberships volunteer, assist with the new refugees that we anticipate will be coming soon. So I really, really hope that it continues. Yeah, tell me about then that the plans and to help people and bring them here. How is that going? Uh, it's good. Um, we have been in conversations with um, our MPs and some other local community groups who have experience with refugees. Of course, this is all new to us. So it's it's been a, a steep learning curve. Um, and we're figuring out what role our community is going to play and how we can assist. Um, but we, we feel good about it. We are looking forward to being able to work with the incredible community organizations that have stepped up and reached out to help us and are very hopeful that we're going to be able to help a lot of people, um, especially the first wave of people that are going to be coming, which are our family members, people from our community, um, our families that we're helping bring over. In fact, a few people have already started to arrive. Um, so we've, we've looked at, you know, housing, how can we support um, with furniture, food, connecting people with jobs. Um, it's a big undertaking, but... We're, we're working on it, and 
we're very hopeful that we'll be able to support as many people as we can. This reminds me of the effort that Canadians put in when the Syrian refugees arrived uh, back in late 2015 and early 2016. So do you have a lot of people volunteering saying we would like to help? Yes, we do. We do. Um, And we're so grateful for those especially who have that experience, you know, who have, um, for example, uh, previously sponsored a refugee from Syria or um, there's people who have stepped forward who have sponsored refugees from uh, parts of Africa, things along those lines. And it's incredibly helpful because they know what that looks like. They have that experience um, and they understand what a big undertaking it is. I think you know, we've had this incredible swell of support and people saying we want to help. But I I personally didn't realize just how much of an undertaking it is to help sponsor a refugee, to help bring someone into the country. It's a very big commitment. Um, and we're so grateful for those who have that experience, who can help us to figure out what that means for our community and how we can hopefully um expand that within our community. So what can the rest of us do here, Devin? How can we help? Well, there's lots of different ways. Um, Of course, continuing to contact your MPs and put pressure on the government to, especially right now, close the skies. Um, Ukraine is asking NATO to close the skies um, and protect Ukraine's airways from Russian attacks. Um, The Assaults from the skies have been absolutely horrific, and this wouldn't be the first time that NATO has closed the skies in a similar war. Um, Locally, there's so many things that can be done. Um, You can bring uh, cash and checks and uh, credit card donations to the Ukrainian Cultural Center. We are not a tax charitable donation, unfortunately, so we can't offer a tax receipt, but we are collecting donations for refugees. Um, Folks who want to perhaps donate supplies um, can send them to the Compassionate Warehouse in Esquimalt, who have very kindly offered to take supplies and will be sending supplies to Ukraine. Um, And we have a new website that we've actually developed that is for all the Ukrainian-Canadian organizations on Vancouver Island. It's still being, uh, still information is being added, but it's meant to be a central resource where anybody who's looking to get support or offer support for Ukraine can go. Um, And that's either helpukrainevi.ca or ukrainehelpvi.ca. I can't re- quite remember which. Okay, people, one of those two. People could figure that out for sure. Listen, Devin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? We know that music education helps kids in a lot of ways, helps them build confidence, helps foster creativity. So why aren't we doing more of it? Why isn't it more widely available? Well, there's an innovative program at Vancouver Opera that aims to change that. Our Raji Sohal is going to tell us all about it. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, the Vancouver Opera um, is putting on this really cool program because of uh, the 
funding, really. They got a big donation from C-SPAN and some others to run a program where they bring opera into the schools. Now, they're not going in and performing for the kids. Instead, what this is about is they go in over the course of several weeks and they guide the kids to make their own opera that they get to perform. Now, some people might hear that and go, okay, well, kids don't like opera though, but what is opera, right? It's just storytelling and then with music. And the cool thing about this program is they try to get kids involved in whatever aspect of it that they want to. That could be uh, the costumes, the sets. Everyone has to participate to make it come together. And they come up with a theme, a story. Uh, They even compose the music with someone from VSO. And, you know, at first I thought, okay, well, do kids really want to create old operas like in Italian or German or whatever. But Evelyn De La Haye is one of the VSO's teaching instructors and she's also a soprano. So she's a singer herself. And she said the kids actually determine the content and that's how they make the opera something that matters to them. Uh, we've done project operas about immigration Uh, bullying, human rights, climate change. And it's a really positive way to dig down deep into really emotionally challenging material. Because when you have sung about something, acted it out, put yourself in someone else's story, the knowledge really stays with you because it's it's in your body. I do the creative writing part and um, the work on the drama part. Uh, And then I have a teaching partner, Cassie, who is a composer and a pianist. So she leads the composing workshop and, you know, helps to take their melodies that they're improvising and and put them into a song um, to the lyrics that they've already written with me. And then she accompanies the final product. So she um, improvises piano accompaniments and and plays uh, background music during set changes and and stuff like that. So what you have at the end is, is really quite a little mini professional presentation. Oh, that sounds so cool. And it's so, it's so rewarding, I would imagine, for kids too. Yeah, especially over the course of, you know, working on something for many, many weeks and seeing it come together. And it's a hard thing for a kid to conceive of doing on their own. But if they're doing it with a group of friends that they love, like, like, it just sounds so fantastic. And the kids do love it. But you don't have to take my word for it. Hi, my name is Michael, and I am in grade three. What I liked about Project Opera is that there's a lot of acting and you get to write some parts of the st- of the songs. You get to put in so much hard work and effort. At the very end, you just see it all come together. It's really fun. Everyone gets a part. We all get to paint sets and make all the props. I think it's important because um, it's a nice experience for students to collaborate with each other. Okay, are we sure these are little kids? Because (laughs) I've never heard of little kids talking about collaborating with each other using that phrasing before. Oh, they're using more and better words than we ever used for sure. Well, they're having so much fun putting this thing together and taking it very seriously. I feel like it's helping with their maturity too. But Simi, not everyone has access to this program. Yeah, it's actually not in the curriculum and uh, not all kids get to do it. Uh, The reason is funding. So despite the fact that we know music education helps kids so much with confidence um, and that can lead over to other activities as well and feeling uh, like their self-esteem is boosted from it when they learn something new. Despite all that, um, you know, these programs are expensive to run in schools. And so it's, it's not available across the board. 
And when uh, the Vancouver Opera offered the program, lots of schools uh, lined up and signed up. Unfortunately, not enough funding to make it happen for all the students. And of course, that would be great. So they're always seeking donations. Uh, they still are looking for donations right now for this kind of program. But see me, like I remember when I was a child, any of these extra programs exactly. that were brought to school were the ones that I remember. I do not remember sitting in class and just practicing printing or doing math or like everyday gym class. What I remember is those things like uh, plays when uh, you'd put on a school play or dance or something like yeah. this. And um, it's just made such a difference for my school experience. And when I was really little, when I was uh, in grade three or four, uh, for me at my school in Surrey at Bear Creek Elementary, we had public speaking. So every kid got to come up yes. with a topic on their own. Uh, they wrote a speech, they delivered it to the class. And if you advance, you got to make it to the auditorium, which was not at school. It was at the Surrey Art Gallery. And I did that when I was in grade four. And when I took the stage and my speech was on the Simpsons and why they were important <laughs> to culture, Simi, <laughs> um, I won. I but what I realized was that writing a story, sharing it with an audience, I was like, oh, I like this. I want to keep doing this. So it was literally exposure to that activity through school that made I think me become eventually a journalist. There you go. Uh, you know what I also find too is that those kinds of programs, those things that you just mentioned there, the extras, they're the great equalizer for kids. Because, yeah. you know, somebody like me who grew up in a household where English was a second language, a lot of things I learned in elementary school, Clover Elementary, shout out, um, you know, <laughs> in the mid to late 1970s and early 1980s, that was the first time I was experiencing them. So ice skating and swimming yeah. and all of these things that you did back then through school as an extra, that would have been my only exposure to those things. And that it helped me be just like all the other kids. So it is so valuable, especially if we want everybody to learn about this. They don't often have the opportunity. A lot of adults don't have the opportunity to learn For about sure. opera. Absolutely. Yeah. Just that exposure, I feel at a young age can really open up so many doors for, for later in ways that the kids might not even have any realization of. Although the ones that I played for you, they certainly know. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. No, I think this is such a worthwhile program. Uh, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking all morning long and we will continue to discuss the sky high gas prices and how that's impacting you. You probably, as I did, had a little sticker shock this morning if you have seen a gas station in the last, you know, 12 hours or so. And that's because $2 a litre apparently wasn't enough. Wake up this morning, it looks like it's about $2.10 a litre in most places. Uh, I heard from others that it's higher elsewhere, might even be two fifteen in some places. Let me know what you're seeing where you are, simi at cknw.com. Now, this is having businesses, individuals, organizations everywhere taking a big hit. And in particular, the taxi industry is really feeling it. Drivers are feeling stretched thin. They're continuing to pay those high prices at the pump. And it's not like they can just charge more like other industries. They can't do that. Joining us now is Mohan Kang, president of the BC Taxi Association. Thank you for being here. Good morning, sir. What are you hearing from drivers about the impact of these high gas prices? Well, everybody's concerned, everybody's dismayed like anybody else, and more so the taxi industry being the essential service. You know, we simply can't park the cabs and say, 
when the prices come down, we'll come on the road. We have to be on the road to serve the people in a safe and timely manner. So they have no choice. Also, they can't just raise prices because prices are, are not set by the individual drivers, right? No, they can't. It is set by the PT board, and we cannot charge a penny more than what they grant to us. So then how are drivers dealing with this increase in gas prices? Frustration, anger. What else, you know, you could do when you are bound to be on the road and you know that you're taking the money out of your, you know, uh, the, the money you want to put it on the table for the family, for food and other things. It's already been a tough couple of years. I would imagine that the industry has been going through so much adjustment because of rideshare. Has has the taxi industry lost drivers in the last couple of years? They have lost. The first me was when they introduced the ride-sharing. Uh, not that uh, we say there should not be any ride-sharing. There has to be a even playing field. They don't have any fleet size. You know, they can have... 200 today, they can have 20,000 tomorrow. We can't. And then the double whammy came with the COVID-19. And now to break the uh, backbone, we got the gas pricing, which I don't think anybody dreamt even in BC that they will go that high. So three big things that have hit the industry. Uh, are people, is the demand still there, Mohan? Are people still, like, are taxis still busy out there? People are still taking taxis. People are taking taxi, but not to that amount. When you see the pro-COVID, you know, uh, the business has gone drastically down. Uh, other businesses have gone down too because we are interrelated with other businesses now, with the opening, it was picking up, but with the gas price going, uh, you know, sky high, uh, it is hitting again. I think uh, the guy upstairs uh, is in a fun mood with everybody on the earth. I, I could see how it would feel like that sometimes. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think more drivers will leave the business? Well, there will be probably, I'm, I'm looking at the practical side the drivers, if they can't make the money, they, they won't be on the road. And somebody, others drivers, who has no choice but to be on the road, right, uh, they will be making less and less money, and also it will impact the service. In if what there way? there are less drivers on the road, less cabs on the road. And, and moreover, I'm talking not only for the Metro Vancouver or CRD, we have the membership throughout BC, small places. Uh, Sarah, if you remember, a few years back, the government did drastic cuts in health and other things. Uh, they shut down the ambulances and small hospitals in small places. Now, the only, uh, then the Greyhound was shut down. The only thing which is available to those people in small places is the taxi. They can depend on if they have to go to the hospitals, let's say, Two o'clock in the morning, okay, call the taxi guy. Small mama pop operation, maybe. But they are there, right? And with this thing I'm hearing from my members, right, uh, 
I heard from Port Hardy, I heard from Golden and other places. They are saying, we can't cope up. How we can, you know, keep on continue providing the same safe and timely fashion service if we simply cannot make, you know, uh, survive with the high rising cost of gas. That is so true. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. And thanks for inviting.